Hello and welcome to episode 95 of Tea or Books. I'm Simon. I'm Rachel. And this is the podcast where we debate difficult decisions of books and reading, specifically this time, possibly our most difficult topic Uh yet, Jane Austen versus Virginia Woolf in the first Uh half. We don't normally do authors in the first half, but this time we are. We're making our own rules. Yeah. (laughs) In the second half, we are looking at two novels from the 1950s, I think, Uh, The Half Crown House by Helen Ashton and The Foolish Gentlewoman by Marjorie Sharp. But before we do that, Rachel, how are you and what are you reading? I'm good, thanks. Um, excited that tomorrow I can go to a bookshop. Yes, um, as we record, yes. Yes, so it's very exciting. Um, obviously, that's the first thing I'm going to do tomorrow morning. Hop <laughs> out of the house and skip my way down to Waterstones slash other independent book, bookstore. I was thinking about going to Dawn Books, actually. Might walk to Marlebone and have a wonder. Do you have any particular books that you... I'm no, I just, about, I just, just want to browse. Browsing, yeah. Yeah, I just want to be amongst friends in a bookshop, you know. Um, so that'll be exciting. Um, what am I reading? I've just finished reading uh, an currently unrepublished. I'm pretty sure it's not one of the ones that um, Furrowed, no, what are they called? There's Furrowed Middlebrow is the blog. Dean so Street what, Press. Dean Street Press, thank you. Um, I, I'm pretty sure it's not one of the ones that have recently republished by her. It's a Winifred Peck novel called um, There is a Fortress. It's written in 1945. It's quite an interesting one, actually, because it it's one of those books that was obviously written during World War II, and it's got all of those direct experiences and that the emotional um, experiences of going through war and the war coming to an end and thinking about what will life be like afterwards. And there aren't that many of those sorts of books around that kind of really deal with being in the thick of it, I suppose. Um so I really enjoyed I enjoyed it a lot. Um, it was a bit sort of um, saccharine in places, but I I think that she's a really good writer and I really enjoy her Persephone um, book that was um, Housebound, which I'm pretty sure is also set during the war. Um, yeah, yes, so. I don't think I've read it. I've, I actually put it in a pile to read uh, when I go on holiday soon. But oh. um, when I did... The, when you've just mentioned it, I now think that perhaps actually I did read it when it when it first came out from Persephone. I have to double check. What's it about? Can you remember? Um, well, if I tell you what it's about, then I'm going to tell you like I'm going to ruin the plot for you. Okay, then don't do that because it's kind of central. Um, but it's I think I'm pretty sure it's set during the war, okay. and there is a death. That's all I'll say. Hmm. I'll have to check my my blog to see if I wrote a review of it at any point. But it's, yeah, it's really good. So I, I enjoyed reading that. And um, I would read other books by her as well. But they, I think they're probably, I would imagine that not all of them have been reprinted because they, they might be a, a mixed bag. So, um, yeah, Dean Street Press have done uh, Bewildering Cares and Arrest the Bishop, I think. Yes, she wrote some, a couple of the ones they've republished are her crime novels, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, which I haven't come across otherwise. But and I've just um I started today I'm sort of halfway through Ali Smith's Winter because I've I really enjoyed her summer book which there's a quartet there's a book for each season if you've not heard of them and the last one was Summer that came out last summer um which is you know I really enjoyed Summer this one is slightly bizarre um I'm not sure, I'm kind of I'm not not enjoying it like it's I'm the praise is good and yeah. I, it's sort of ripping along but at the same time I'm I'm still I'm a hundred odd pages in and I'm still thinking I'm not really sure what the point of this is so we'll see how I get on I will persevere but it's a quick read so it's not um I'm sure I'll finish it in an hour or so so <laughs> okay yeah what about you what are you up to and what are you reading well uh I'm actually reading a book that ties in well with Winifred Peck book I'm reading oh. uh The Knox Brothers by Penelope Fitzgerald um, oh right yes yes a biography of her father and her uncles uh, but along the way also her aunt Winifred Peck yeah. <laughs> and another one what a coincidence I know um it is slightly rude that she's called the Knox brothers because we were two sisters as well let's not disregard them indeed mm-hmm. um uh, I'm only a few couple chapters in and it's taken quite a while to get to them she went through quite a few generations of the of the family first and it's a sort of uh, biography where it's um, it's not done like a scholarly biography in that she quite often just throws in anecdotes that without any indication of where she heard them or if they are likely to be true. <laughs> I get the sense there's a lot of it, things that were 
passed down through the family. I'm sure she did lots of research as well, but um, but it's it's a biography written as though it was a memoir, if that if that makes sense. I okay. need if in a memoir you don't have to give footnotes and yeah rationales for things, and she's done done a similar thing. But um, I really liked her biography of Charlotte Mew, which I read a few years ago. Oh. I would give this one a go. Well, let me know how it is. Yeah, do like a bit of Penelope. Um, and yeah, I'm I'm good, thanks. I I have not been to a bookshop for a very long time. I did go to Part of Books in Annick last August, but apart from that, I've not been to a bookshop for a year. So <gasps> I am hoping to go to one probably in a few weeks' time when a friend is visiting Oxford, and we can go together. How exciting. No. Uh, and I think, I mean, a lot of the things I like doing have not really changed with lockdown, i.e. sitting inside with a book and a cup of tea. So, <laughs> but but browsing bookshops is is the thing that I really, really miss because, yeah, it's a serendipity of who knows what I'll find. Exactly. Awesome. That's what I really miss. I was actually watching, um, I don't know if you've seen it on Netflix, but there's a, a series called Pretend It's a City with uh, Frances Leibovitz, who is... No a new york um she was a right she's a writer but she's she's also very funny um and she's one of those people who's friends with everyone she's in her 70s like there's nobody she doesn't know <laughs> and it's this wonderful series of her just speaking to martin scorsese he's a really good friend of hers and and all of these kind of speaking engagements and the last episode in the series is all of her thoughts on books and um she talks about being in a bookshop and the joy of browsing compared to when you're, she's like, you know, Amazon's great. If you can't find a rare book, you need to get something. You can't find it in the shop. Yeah. But she's like, you know, there's nothing that beats being in a shop and just seeing things that catch your eye and then being able to, to kind of make a connection between something that you'd never see on an internet page. And I'm like, yeah, that's what I miss. I miss walking in and thinking, oh, I've not heard of that. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. oh, there's a lovely display all about books to do with this. And I'd, I'd not, I'd not seen that one or whatever. So it's, um, yeah, it's going to be really exciting to be able to go back out and see things. And I'm also going out for dinner tomorrow, which is exciting. People bringing me stuff that I don't have to wash up. <laughs> uh, yeah, speaking of um, book purchases, I was, I'd, I've been trying to sort of convince myself that I don't need to buy all the new Gilead series in American editions ever since they uh, came out. And then yesterday I was like, no, I'm going to do it. And I <gasps> went to a book depository to buy them and discovered they've all got oprah's book club stickers on them no what i can't tell from the picture is whether they peel off or if they're built into the cover but i think they might be built into the cover no that's wicked how could they do that those lovely designs so if there's anyone who has been to a bookshop in america or or is going to go soon and if you could tell me whether or not those stickers are removable that'd be good to know because i don't want to get them if they've got a big Oprah sticker. No, nothing against Oprah's book club. I'm sure it's great, but I just I don't need that sticker on the cover of my book. Well, surely they must be removable. Do you not think? Well, they used. There's been the whole thing of these like Costa book winner or you know Rich and Judy book club where they looks like a sticker, but it's it's just on the cover as part of the design. Mm-hmm. I guess because it's cheaper than hiring someone to put stickers on all the books. Hideous. I don't know. I don't know. Ah, so, Come on, investigate for us, please. Yes, please do some investigative journalism, um, and then if they are removable, then I think I'm going to replace my Gilead books because I've just been yearning for those books for so long. <laughs> oh, brilliant! Have you got a hard cover of the first of Gilead, by the way? No, I've only got like mm-hmm. all the old, like you know, shabby British paperbacks, secondhand sort of thing. Mine are all hard covers, apart from Gilead, which I have not had back. So. Oh yes. Well, the less said about that, the better. <laughs> yeah. Right, so the first half, as I say, we would normally do topics that we couldn't, didn't have any ideas. Uh, and this is something that my friend Paul has been keen for a long time that we do, um, because he alleges well, that most of our decisions are really simple. He wants us to do a difficult <laughs> one. <laughs> and Austin well, versus Wolf, I think, at least for me, will certainly be very difficult. Yeah, well, it's going to be very difficult for both of us. They're very yeah. different, but equally magnificent. So maybe we should start with our reading history with with them. Mm, um, okay. Do you yeah. want to go first? Sure. Um, I, I came to Austin before Wolf. I think a lot of people would probably be the same. Um, and I remember my first Austin was Emma when mm-hmm. I was about 13 or 14. I didn't get on with it initially. 
Um, and I had to come back to it. But I think by the time I was about 15, I, I was a signed up fan and I read, steadily read my way through all of them and loved all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, Virginia Woolf, I started to read when I was about 17. That's when I was applying to university. And I thought, well, when I go to my interviews, I'm going to have to sound impressive. So, <laughs> um, I ought to read some Virginia Woolf. And I remember not knowing anything about her. I'd never studied her at school or anything. So I just went to the library and, and took out the ones that they had. I think I started with To the Lighthouse, which I didn't understand a word of, but thought it was lovely. Like, I loved the language, but I didn't really, I didn't connect with it as a story, if you see what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, likewise with, I think, Jacob's Room. I was like, no idea what's going on, but lovely. Um, and the waves defeated me entirely, which um, it still does, actually. It's the one of her books I've not read, ever managed uh, to make my way through. Um, and then I don't think I came back to her until I was doing my third year at university, and we did a course on, and um, Virginia Woolf was on the course, and I read to the lighthouse, or potentially Mrs. Dalloway, I can't remember which one for the course. And I remember nobody in uh, my seminar had heard of her, and I was just like, I oh, can't wow. believe I'm in a room with such Philistines. Um, and I remember reading it then, and I think because it was alongside doing it for a seminar and having some kind of academic support behind it, I got it for the first time and then I have since read my way through all of her stuff and loved the vast majority of it. Yeah. Great. What about you? Thanks. Yeah. Um, I first tried Pride and Prejudice when the BBC series came out. So I watched that with my parents when I was 10, um, mm-hmm. it came out and I tried Pride and Prejudice and I just couldn't get on with it. It was too complicated. I hadn't really read any adult novels at that age so i just i thought no that's not for now i'll put that on one side uh and I, then i think i probably read it when i was 14 15 and really liked it i i think in between i'd listened to the audiobook maybe and obviously the bbc version has, is so close to the dialogue that in mm. some ways i was very familiar with it um i didn't read any others or maybe i read sense and sensibility around that time as well but i didn't read any others for a while and i actually read the rest when i was when I was applying for university and someone said to me, if you're going to interviews for English, there should be one author you've read everything by so that they don't, you don't have to say, oh, I've not read those ones. Uh, and I thought, well, Austin didn't write very much. So I'll do it. <laughs> <She'll> do. <laughs> so I read, read the rest when I was, I guess, 17, 18, whatever, around that age for, for interviews at uni. Um, Virginia Woolf, I went to see The Hours with my mum and her friends when that came out which was 2002 was it so i guess i was 16 mm. um and i really loved the film still my favorite film uh and so one of my mom's friends lent me mrs dalloway uh off the back of because uh, the film and the book the hours are about uh, virginia Woolf writing mrs dalloway amongst other things as you know uh and i yeah it, i loved it and i went straight onto whatever else my school library had looking back quite surprised there was any Virginia Woolf in my school library because I can't imagine anybody else there has ever read any mm-hmm. but, uh, and I read To the Lighthouse and and The Waves and The Years I think um, and it was a revelation for me I think particularly The Waves which I loved at the time I don't think I understood it but I it was the first time I'd read a book and thought language is can just be really beautiful uh, and what it's communicating is sort of secondary to how it's communicating it. Um, and I, I, yeah, as I, said, I just sort of just went through it thinking, gosh, this is, this is stunning writing. And it changed my way of relating to literature as a whole, I think. So it was, it was quite a big, big moment in my literary journey. Mm. And then I finished reading the rest of Virginia Woolf when I, I did a, spe- a module in, in Virginia Woolf at university. Although I've never read Night and Day, that's my my one that's left. Oh, yeah, that's good. Yeah, I um I can't quite cope with the idea of having read them all, which is why I've left it. Yeah, I, I was like that with with Jane Austen for a while. I I never read all of her juvenilia because I thought I don't want there to be nothing left, but I have for now. So yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so do, do you want to perhaps start with what's your favourite? of each of the authors yeah sure so as you say like we both love both these authors so that's not the debate <laughs> We're <Yeah>. not good. <laughs> um so for a long time my favorite jane austen was sense and sensibility because it's oh. um because i think it's the funniest and that's no, no one ever says that 
<laughs> I, know, I remember a tutor asking me, and I said, asked me why, and I said, well, it's the funniest, and that didn't seem to be a good enough academic reason. But, <laughs> but this, I mean, I think any book with Mr. and Mrs. Palmer in alone would rocket <laughs> to my favorite. <laughs> I just I think they're so wonderful. Over time, I have, I think it might have gone to Pride and Prejudice, which I did always love, but I just, the more I reread it or think about it, the more I'm amazed by the genius of her plotting as well as the the humor and the great characters and all that sort of thing it's just mm. so tightly and brilliantly plotted um and there's a reason that it has those great archetypes or ha- people who've become archetypes uh, in it in a way that perhaps hasn't happened with the other books um, and partly that's all the adaptations and things mm. but it is extraordinary and then with with wolf it's usually whichever one i've read most recently <laughs> so um although Every time I read Orlando, I like it slightly less, so I'm going to pause that one for a while. Uh, the one I always recommend to people to read if they're starting with her is Jacob's Room, which isn't one of the most famous ones, but it's the, the her third novel is one where she started being more experimental um, after two relatively formally traditional novels, but it's not the all-out experimentation of, say, The Waves. So um, it's the one I... It's probably the one I return to the most, but as I say, whichever one I've read most recently of hers is likely to be my favourite. Mm. How about you? Um, well, with Jane Austen, I think I, it's always a very difficult decision um, because it's I love all of them. Um, but I think the one, if someone said to me, you could only ever read one Jane Austen again. The others will be burned or something. <laughs> I think I would say Emma is my favourite. I was going to guess Emma, yes. <laughs> I I love Emma because I think she is the most like me of all of the heroines. <laughs> um, and I, I, I hope that shows that I'm very um, aware of my own flaws. Um, <laughs> One and... of which is apparently you need your books to feature people who are like you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's such an Emma thing to say. Emma would definitely pick the one that had the person yeah, who was most like her right. in it. <laughs> Me, that one. <laughs> yeah. Um, I just, you know what? I love how clever the plot is. I love how every time I reread it, I see the unraveling of of Emma's um, misconceptions earlier and earlier. Um, but I also love how, when I, you know, whenever I talk to my students about why I love Jane Austen or why this is such a good book. It's about her sleight of hand as a as an author. It's so cleverly constructed that how she's like a magician. She's so busy distracting us over here that we don't see what's going on over here the whole time. And it's a real genius work of art in the the sense of how convincing Emma is as a narrator without even she's not even the narrator, but her voice coming through the this kind of, you know, third person narrator is so strong mm-hmm. that you don't listen to anyone else and I think it's it's just marvellous and I love the characters I'd love Mrs Elton is absolutely <laughs> you know you say sense and sensibility is the funniest but I think Mrs Elton has to be the funniest um, character in all of Jane Austen's novels her complete and utter self-delusion is brilliant um, and yeah I just find it a wonderful wonderful book and every time it makes me cry and makes me laugh and it's just a wonderful comfort read I know exactly what's going to happen every time I'm still surprised and (laughs) it's just fantastic but I also love persuasion and it depends what mood I'm in as to sometimes I do think persuasion is a better novel probably interesting okay um but I enjoy Emma more I do think Emma's the the best, possibly the only one who has a character who goes from being completely ridiculous to complete pathos, and you feel like breaks your heart in Miss Bates. Oh, I think just yeah, and I, I can't. There, I, there might be other examples, but I can't think. There's, I can't think of any others where you go from laughing at a character yeah. as absurd, and then and then you're like, oh my gosh, Emma monster for laughing at them. Yeah, you go on that journey with Emma, and I think that's mm-hmm. what's so wonderful about it, because, you know, you're sucked into what she's saying, and, and everything she says seems really reasonable, and then you have those moments where you actually see things from a different perspective, and you think, gosh, actually, she's a right piece of work, and she needs mm. to sort herself out, and it's a sort of correction to yourself, but in a gentle way. But, I mean, in in Persuasion, that letter, Captain Wentworth's letter, 
I mean, it just reduces me to tears. <laughs> it's wonderful. Yeah, the first time I read it, I was like, for heaven's sake, man, just say it out loud. So then I've become, like, <laughs> become more sensitive as, I, as I've got older. It's just wonderful. And your favourite Virginia Woolf? My favourite Virginia Woolf is Between the Acts, Mm-mm. which I just think, I remember the first time I read it, I was just so overwhelmed by how brilliant it was and how beautiful and how sad um and how true and how nostalgic and energetic it was that I just had I sort of laid down for like half an hour which (laughs) I say all the time I have to do after I've read something and then I just started it immediately again I had to just keep I had Mm -hmm. I couldn't not I couldn't leave the world I just thought it's absolutely brilliant it's one of her lesser known ones and lesser read ones but I think that that's a real shame because for me that is the absolute apotheosis of her skills as a writer in telling a fantastic story but also a quality of writing that is sublime um i do i mean i love many of i love mrs dalloway love to the lighthouse i teach to the lighthouse in my sixth form level and the kids hate it when they first read it but when we study it together they they love it but between the acts for me is it's got something different about it, something really special. It really spoke to me on a deep level when I read it. And I think it's, yeah, it says something really special about humanity, I think. Yeah, it's one of my favourites as well. Although I will confess, I may have confessed in the podcast before, that I do tend to skim the pageant sections when I, I know it's... the best bit? Uh, I just, I want to be in the modern day as always. Um, <laughs> I don't, Maybe just for the sake of uh offsetting that we can talk about our least favorites or anything oh. that we don't like about them um and i'll start if that's right uh so with wolf i think i i struggle a bit with mrs dalloway uh, which i love in general but the portrait of the i can't remember what she is really the, the sort of governess slash companion or whatever mm. her daughter's friend uh is so elitist and it's critical of her faith, it's critical of her class, and uh, in a way that feels like it's coming from the author that, rather than just mm. from the character. So I think that's the... I know, people, I know in real life Virginia Woolf was a snob and people were very critical about her, um, and in many ways justifiably, but I I think generally she's quite good at that not coming through too much in her writing, but that's one of the places where I think it does a slightly offset, or not offset, mm. a slightly... Um, intrude uh and um but other than that i really do find it hard to find anything i don't love in her writing where (laughs) (laughs) where with austin i will i've only read mansfield park once and i did find it really boring but i was 17 so maybe i need to read it again i think you ought to i have read it several times and i only i intensely disliked it for most of it and then as i got older and also when i taught it Mm. um it completely changed my perspective of it. And I can, I actually think that Mansfield Park is probably her best written novel. Oh, interesting. Okay. Um, but the flaw in it, which she acknowledged herself, is that the heroine is, is really quite annoying. Um, mm. and unsympathetic in many ways. I think if you can fully implant yourself in her consciousness and you can understand and appreciate why she is the way she is then you can feel sympathetic to her but I think if you come to Mansfield Park after having read her other books and you've got used to those kind of feisty um strong-headed um kind of robust heroines that you see in her other novels Fanny Price just is like a you know little bit of limp lettuce in comparison and you've got is it what's her name Mariah Mary 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 yes that's right uh who is basically yes, exactly. that character and suddenly you're, you're asked to think about her in a very different way. Exactly, which, you yeah. know, I don't really, I never really have. I mean, yeah, she's a piece of work, but who isn't? Um, <laughs> so I just think it's, I, I just, I, it's a bit of, do you know what, it's, I think it's, um, the problem with it is that it's very moralistic in a way that Jane Austen is, is moralistic in a way, but, you know, she does it with a, 
a very light hand in the other novels, whereas this one feels a bit like you're being told what to think and what to mm. do. And, and I think she just gets the measure of it perhaps slightly wrong. Or perhaps, you know, more than the other books, it's more of a novel of her time. I don't know. It's, it's very, yeah, it's very of its time, isn't it? Or at least it's, it's the sort of novel other people were writing a lot. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think perhaps that's why it doesn't have that kind of sense of universal affection that the other novels do. Um, but that's interesting that as well, though, that you've never felt compelled to reread it, and that tells you a lot, doesn't it? True, yeah. Um, yeah, but maybe, maybe that would be my challenge for this year. Yeah. Um, are there things that you don't like about either of them? Uh, Virginia Woolf, I've, like I said, I've not, never been able to get through the waves, but I must try again. Um, I think it's just because I, it's the kind of, you know, it is a book about the prose, not the story, and I mm, think you yeah. have to, to be, I'm an impatient reader, um, and unless I've decided I'm reading this just to enjoy every line, then I'm just going to be like, Ugh, you know, can't be bothered. So I do need to go back to that. I, um, in her other novels, I do find the first two, um, her first two novels, for people who haven't read them, they are traditional, what I would say, you know, late 19th century, early 20th century novels. They're, they're, there's nothing experimental about them whatsoever. In fact, they, mm-hmm. they're, they're like reading something by someone completely different, yeah. um, which does make her experimental style later on even more extraordinary because you see where she came from and, and mm-hmm. her, you know, in the beginning of her writing career thinking, okay, this is what a novel looks like and I'm going to write, write a novel like that because that's what I've, I've experienced. And then her, obviously, when she gets into that third novel, Jacob's Room, she's starting to think, okay, well, maybe it doesn't have to be like this. And then gradually as she moves through and then I think probably peaking at the waves, you've got that really experimental modernist style. But interestingly, again, her final couple of novels go back to that more yeah, yeah. traditional style. So you can really see that transformation of her as a writer over time. Um, but her first two novels, I think, are really quite dull. I mean, The Voyage Out is is dull. Um, and in my opinion, I also can't forgive what she does to her main character, <laughs> who has my name, um, and Rachel Vinrace. Um, and I just, I thought the ending was unnecessary and it felt, um, histrionic in a way that 19th century novels often do. And I, I just sort of got to the end and thought, oh, for goodness sake, you know. No, you're just going to throw it against the wall. That's how I <laughs> Again, it's one I haven't reread. Um, and I remember liking it thinking, oh, she can do this sort of novel. And it reminded me of many artists, including her sister Vanessa Bout, who are quite, impressionistic or experimental after they've mastered like a still yeah. life you, you see their early work and think oh actually they could do not photorealistic necessarily but they could do painting yeah. what, yeah. as it look what it looks like really well before they start doing other things and it seemed like yeah. she had to do, get out her system like this is the traditional yeah as you say the traditional novel that i've grown up with and now i'm gonna subvert it um and yeah. of course when we first meet mrs Dalloway. indeed we do and it is interesting to see that, you know, she understood the rules before you have to learn the rules before you can learn to break mm-hmm. the rules. Right. So there's an element of that in it. Uh, Night and day, I think, is more successful. But again, there are huge sections of that which are just dull um, and and it's too long and it needs needs editing, frankly. So it's th- those early works. I think are interesting from the perspective if you're looking at Virginia Woolf's entire oeuvre and, and you're trying to figure out, you know, how did she grow as a writer? Where were her influences, etc.? It's it's useful to have them to to kind of track her progress. But in terms of are they really enjoyable to read? Would you curl up on the sofa and get absorbed? I'm not entirely sure that I would. Um, yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah, those ones I think are weaker. When it comes to Austin, um, for me the only dud is um sense of sensibility so it's very interesting to me that it's my favorite um do you know what i just find i love the female characters apart from marianne who is just really annoying and (laughs) needs to be smacked um but and i think lucy Steele is a fantastic portrait of a villain and that is a real high point of the novel for me because she's so well written she's so odious and i just love how angry i get when i read it and i just think oh that's just brilliant writing that you can make me care so much um but in terms of how it works as a romantic novel which it essentially is um we never see any of the um the main 
like Edward, for example, he's in the beginning for five minutes, disappears for most of the novel, then turns up on horseback at the end. And it's like, oh, okay, great. Um, And I don't ever and still can't get behind, even after Alan Rickman played him in the film, (laughs) Colonel Brandon being a suitable match for Marianne. I don't feel that it's a happy ending um, for either of them. I think it's a terrible marriage, a terrible decision. And also... um, is it Wickham, though, or is that Pride and Prejudice? I was Will- Willoughby. Willoughby, that's it. Willoughby is just, you know, gets off kind of scot-free at the end. And I just think the whole thing is, it's just a bit bizarre. I feel like it's, it, she's, it was a sort of prototype for Pride and Prejudice, and it probably should have stayed in a drawer. Oh, wow. Yeah. See, one of the things I really like about it is that I think it is a tragedy and at the end and is meant to be and it's it's the film adaptation that many people think oh adam rickman what a catch whereas <laughs> they it's the sense and sensibility of swapped round so that uh, eleanor gets her bizarre like oh i thought he was married to somebody else but it turns out he's not um moment and marianne has to settle for something uh much more sensible or letting her head rule her heart rather than the other way around and well, i think i think it's really 20 mo- years older than her i mean it's horrific yeah, I, I agree. It's horrific. I'm not. I don't think. It, I don't think it's a happy ending. I think it's a really clever ending. Well. Also, I I didn't know you when you were 15, or uh, Rachel, but I fully imagine you were exactly like Marianne when you were 15. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know me too well. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why she's so annoying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she would definitely grow up to be Emma. <laughs> Oh dear. Um, well, we could talk about these people all day, but we should probably, uh, unless it was, was there any other areas you wanted to talk before, about before we come to a decision? Well, no, because we will be here all day, won't we? Yeah. This is, I think, the hardest decision that I hope we've ever had before as well done, Paul, I mean, for quite recommending frankly, it. Quite frankly, in my life. So yeah, that's what true. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I have been thinking about it for ever since Paul first asked me, which was about two years ago, probably. And I go back and forth all the time. But I think I am going to choose Austin because there are moods when I don't want, would not want to read something as um, flowing and beautiful and you know artistic as Virginia Woolf. But I can't imagine any mood in which I would not want to read something by Jane Austen because she's a, as brilliant a writer in a very different way, but also the sort of lie back and enjoy yourself without having to think too much sort of writer. Whereas Virginia Woolf, you have to have, you have to have your A game on as a reader, particularly if you're reading one of the more experimental ones. Yeah, Austin. Well, I mean, I'm exactly the same as you for exactly the same reasons. I Mm. admire Virginia Woolf enormously as a writer. And I think that she is one of the greatest writers in the English language and her work is beautiful to read, but you do have to be completely switched on in order to get the most out of it. And sometimes you just can't be bothered. Um, and there is no Austin book apart from Sense of Sensibilities, <laughs> which I sort of enjoy. Yeah. Um, yeah. but it's just not at the same level as the others. Um, that I, I wouldn't, if someone said to me, you know, you can only take six books with you forevermore, I would pack my Austins and be done. And I think that's, she's my favorite. She'll always be my favorite. And I would quite happily only read her for the rest of my life and be content. So there we are. Okay. Oh, I feel like I've been through something. Yeah. (laughs) 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 Need a cup of tea after that. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, So for the middle section, it's actually last week, sorry, last time we did um, Gillian's question about visiting authors' houses. And she had a second sort of subsidiary question Mm -hmm. that I thought would work well here, which was, have we been anywhere else? because of books oh. visited anywhere because of books so we're not thinking about all those houses but maybe places that we've read books set in or that sort of thing oh right okay yeah uh oh okay that's just a little think have you got yes. something um no basically <laughs> I, <laughs> I was thinking and the only the only one i can come up with and it was connect with the house is that um for winnie the pooh i went and went to the well, one in the book is the hundred acre woods, wood, ra- yeah. rather smaller acres in reality. Yeah. So I did, I did run down the drive and see his house, but we also went to to find uh, the Pooh Sticks Bridge, lovely, the, the cops on the hill, and all those sorts of yeah. things. So, yeah, I went on my first brownie camp there. 
slept over oh, at Hampton Yeah, it was good fun. Um, yeah, I guess I think for me, a place I've been to that was in a book or was on sort of, I guess I wanted to see uh, Daphne du Maurier's Cornwall. Mm-hmm. So I went to the area near Menabilly and and which is a private home, um, but you can't you know you can't go and visit it or get near it. Or what what Mandalay is based on? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, oh yes, yeah, sorry, you should have I should have mentioned that. <laughs> um, so I've been around there to look at, it, and I've also been to Poldark Country. Not that I've read the books, but I've read I've watched the uh, TV series. <laughs> I don't know if that counts. Um, and I'm just I I went to I wanted to see Chatsworth because I knew that. Um, uh, what's his house called? Pemberley. Yes, thank you. Pemberley. I knew that Pemberley and Pride and Prejudice was based on Chatsworth, so I wanted to see it. Um, so that was really interesting to look at and to think, gosh, you know, how impressed she must have been coming in here. And quite frankly, uh, no matter how rude a man had been to me, if I walked into <laughs> this house, I'd be like, yeah, go on then. Uh, <laughs> we can always have separate wings. Exactly. We don't even need to see each other. Um, so that, and I've also really wanted to go and see the Peak District, not the Peak District, sorry, uh, the Lake District, um, because I wanted to experience the the environs of the Romantic poets and to see what had inspired them so much. Um, and uh, you know, obviously, when you go there, you realise immediately why it's such an inspiring place when it's not covered in mist. So mm. um, yeah, I've been to quite a few places because I've wanted to see. I guess I've maybe not because I wanted to see where the novel was set, but but because I wanted to see what it, what had inspired the author or, or how yeah, yeah. how the author's setting had inspired their novels. So, for example, I said last time when we were talking about Jane Austen's house, when I saw the village that she had lived in, it made a lot more sense to me as to how she was able to write about people from all different social sectors so well, because you could see how clearly people had from different classes had lived cheek by jowl. Uh, mm. in that village and that was lovely to be able to visualize it um but i guess like i've been to cities and things because i've wanted to after i've read a book and thought oh i'd like to know i'd like to see that city mm, okay, um, yeah so i think one of the reasons why i wanted to go to um rome so much is because i'd read about it and i can't remember what book but i'd, I'd read a novel where rome was featured oh, i think or florence maybe one of the other i think it's in um i think it's in crossing to safety by wallace stegner which is my one of my favorite books and it's there's a section where the the couples they have um they're american but they have a a, a period of time that's funded to go and work in florence they're university lecturers and the descriptions of it were wonderful, and I thought, oh, I must go. And then I did, and it was just as wonderful as it said. So, yeah, sometimes I'm inspired to go and visit cities um, around the world because I've read descriptions of things. I mean, it's not always possible to go to places. And I think sometimes it's a bit disappointing. Like, there's a couple of times where I've been reading books set in the 1930s and 40s, and the description of the place is so lovely, and then you go there, and it's like, oh, it's all been destroyed, or, yeah, yeah. You know, or a massive hotel's been built here, and it's not the idyllic little quiet backwater it used to be. But it's still interesting to see the difference. Yes, your mention of Daphne du Maurier reminds me that a couple of years ago I stayed at Frenchman's Creek Cottage. Oh. So I have done that. And we used to occasionally stay in this cottage uh, on, on the Helford, which I don't know if, if, if part of Helford was called Frenchman's Creek or if it was just where she might have faced it on. But um, that was long before I'd read Frenchman's Creek, so that was more my mum going to visit it and we just happened <laughs> to be there. Uh, the place I'd love to go to and haven't is Rye, uh, because of oh, mapping the books. lovely in Rye. You'd so, love it. Yeah, one day, one day. Well, we shall have to go together because it's very close to where my parents live. Oh, lovely. Let's yeah. Do that. yeah. So there you go. Um, the answer, Julian, not really, but a few, a few. There, <laughs> uh, and on to The Half Crown House by Helen Ashton and The Foolish Gentlewoman by Marjorie Sharp. Um, pick, pick one to introduce us to. I'll do The Half Crown House, if that's all right. Great. Uh, do you want to start? So this book is set on one day, um, on the opening, the last day of the season of the opening of um, the name of the house, which I can't remember. Oh, I can't either. Oh, no. <laughs> Hornbeam House. Have I made that up? Oh, well, the family called Hornbeam. Yeah, let's say that yeah, that's what it is. Yeah. Um, and they, it's a rather dilapidated family sort of manor house that's that's not really that special inside. 
um, but it's been around in the family for several hundred years and the family open it up to the public because they need the cash. It's, it's the books. It's set in the fifties just after the war and, um, the, the family are short of cash because of a previous generation's gambling debts. And the woman who is running the house is in her late twenties. She's called Henrietta and she's looking after the house for her, her orphaned nephew who is going to be inheriting it. He's only nine. Um, and her brother, her twin brother was killed, um, in World War II. And also on the estate lives her cousin Charles, whose wife and child were killed in the Blitz and he, um, does the market garden on the estate and they live together in the house and they've also got their wicked grandmother who lives in the attic and hates everyone and everything and the story is basically about one day in the life of the family and through looking at the house and the objects in the house and the rooms in the house she Helen Ashton sort of tells the story of this family over time but also looks at in many ways the the kind of the difficulties really in the 1950s of, of having a house like this, of having the weight of it on you when you don't have very much money and what is the place for houses and families like this in a modern society and would it be better if, um, you know, the house was was sold and, and the family moved on. So it's not just about the house and the family, it's also about the social history and the so- social circumstances of post-war England really. Lovely. Yeah. Um, and The Foolish Gentlewoman is similarly set in a fairly big privately owned house, although it, it often it felt like it was in the middle of nowhere, but it's only eight miles from Charing Cross. So it's um, it felt a bit like yeah. Hatstead or something to me. Yeah. 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 Certainly. I mean, it was probably more rural in when it was written than it would be now. But um, yes, where uh, Isabel lives, she is a, a widow and her brother in law has come to visit. Uh, she's quite. Um, I guess scatty, but with a sort of depth of thought every now and then that's, that flares up. For instance, this time she's just been to church and heard a sermon where it's mentioned that it doesn't matter how long it is since you've done something wrong, it's still the same amount of wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and she feels guilty about having deprived uh, a woman called Tilly from, or, or stopped getting a woman called Tilly getting the note. Uh, asking her to marry this visiting man uh, until he's gone off and, and not married to this rich man. She's had a, a, a difficult and, and poor life as a companion. And so Isabel wishes to make amends by giving Tilly her house and all her money, <laughs> <laughs> except she's going to keep a, a certain amount to tide her over and thinks she might go move in with a lady who works at a hairdresser or something. But um, yeah, and her she reveals this plan to her brother-in-law, Simon, uh, and to um, Jacqueline, who sort of lives there as, a, I guess, a companion. Um, and they try and dissuade her. It doesn't work. But we, uh, then she invites Tilly, Tilly Cuff, what a name, uh, to, come, <laughs> <laughs> to come and stay with stay with them. It doesn't initially reveal the plan. Tilly thinks she's being invited to come as a companion and gradually works out what, what's going on. And it it sounds like it might be a sort of a big mo- moral quandary sort of novel it's i mean that element is in there but it's marjorie sharp so well she's all actually quite different this one's not one of her out and out comedies but um, it is quite funny nonetheless yeah um and i first read it in 2002 2003 what? sort of time um the first marjorie sharp i read i remembered absolutely nothing about it when i was reading it it, was, it did feel as though i'd never read it before but i definitely did read it but you must have liked it because it set you off on reading our others, really. Yeah, I remember liking it. I didn't read another one for probably 10 years after that, but I did buy quite a lot during that time. Classic Simon. Yes, classic Simon. (laughs) 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 And I'm glad I did, because now I love her, and they're all there waiting to be read. Um, And you read both of them quite recently for the first time, is that right? I did, yes. So Helen Ashton I knew about from having read her Persephone book which is Bricks and Mortar and I can't remember how I came across it actually I think I was just idly browsing um online and I found a very cheap copy and I thought oh that's a beautiful dust jacket why I'll just give it a go um and I was really also taken by the the plot the idea of it I've never read something where it's set in a house that's being, uh, you know, like a stately home that's being open to the public and you sort of learning about the family through the rooms and the objects in the house. I thought it was a very interesting premise, quite unique. Um, so I 
I read it, I wanted to read it mainly for that reason. And actually, it was much more interesting than that to me. It reminded me in many ways of The Village by uh, Margaret Lasky in its exploration of post-war Britain and the huge societal shifts um, happening and people's, I guess, not distrust, but that kind of breaking down of deference towards the landed gentry and that idea that actually it's not really fair for you to hang on to this big house and all this land. Why should we be paying to come and look at this when this really should belong to all of us? And that attitude coming through quite strongly and the feeling of, you know, an old England falling away in many senses, which I, I thought was really interesting and the dilapidation of the house and the way in which the house is that dilapidation being perhaps reflective of the dilapidation of, of Britain in a post-war world um, it's really interesting uh, yeah I thought it was um, similarly a really good snapshot of a period, I, I like your comparison with the village because that definitely feels like it's this historical moment that was very distinct from anything that came before or afterwards um, I think yeah, I really, I did really like it. I think I found it difficult to know where the centre of it was, if that makes sense. Okay. So, so when it starts with this, you know, Victor's coming. He's the, um, I don't think you said this in your intro, did you? He's the no. the the son of Henry, the the twin who died, yeah. uh, who was born after Henry died, uh, who had he had a very quick marriage with this lower class woman. Was she working in an ice cream shop or something? Yeah, like that? something like yes. that. Yeah. Uh, who the family. Uh, Awful to, truly awful to her, and I don't know why she's letting him come to live. Basically, you're like, now he's turned. Well, because her her new yeah. husband doesn't want him, basically. Yeah, well, yes, he doesn't, but you do get the sense that they're like, well, he'll come here and you'll never see him again. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they haven't quite said that, but I, yeah, it is quite, I think, quite traumatic. And to me, it seemed like it might be a book about Victor coming to live with them and what mm. that's like. And we do see him again, but not for a while. And that's very much not the heart of the book. It's something that happens and then it moves on to something else. So you're also thinking about the uh, economics of a house. You'll think um, Henrietta is considering a proposal from an American. You've got, um, I can't remember, there's lots of strands to it. And it is, I, I think it does work as this composite picture, but because i don't know i started thinking it was going to be one sort of novel and then it became a different sort of novel i found it um i don't know slightly slightly hard to to commit to it if that makes sense oh, like, okay. yeah like well not to keep reading it but to to like know where i where i should put my emotions whilst right. reading it okay. i guess because it's like i was really invested in victor's story and then he went and then he disappeared um and then i was really invested in the next person's story and then they, that disappeared and yeah yeah, it's interesting because you do, there are so, there are a lot of characters. And I think for me, the heart of the novel was Henrietta and her, I guess, un, well, I don't want to say too much because it's, it would be in the end, but her feelings for the men in her life. Um, and I thought the ending was quite shocking as well. I really wasn't expecting that. Interesting. I won't spoil the ending, but I guessed from the beginning because I was like, what happens to every novel with a big house? <laughs> I just didn't see it coming. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I mean, the way the way it happened was very clever. Yeah. 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 And I think it was very well done. And also, I think it was. Yeah, I just think it was a very interesting exploration, also of of grief and what the war had done to people. And mm. um, Henrietta was a very lost person, really, and. I just, yeah, I, I enjoyed it very much and I love the description of the house. I mean, I see what you mean about how it perhaps doesn't quite hang together um, in places and there is a lot going on. And if you don't feel that strong pull towards Henrietta's story, you are a little bit like, OK, well, you know, why am I here? I suppose I, if I'm thinking about from her perspective, I suppose she would argue that the house is what holds everything together. That's the Yeah, and I think once I sort of realised that, because I, I also found, I know you say it's set in one day, but we're all we're constantly going back to people's reminiscences yeah. about the past, or you know, the the people, the servants who were there, the tour guides talking about sometimes centuries in the past. Yeah. Um, and I also I'd say it is the fourth in this. I don't know if it counts as a series, but the fourth set in this family. So I wasn't sure how many of them. Um, 
how many of those things, looking back, were about things that had happened in previous books. Oh, really? So I didn't know if you got the blevins like my my flap my um my flapjack. What's the word I want? Dust jacket. Makes me want a flapjack. I know. The Half Crown House is another of the Wiltchester Chronicles, early ones being Tadpole Hall, Joanna at Littlefold, Yeoman's Hospital, and the Captain Comes Home, so it's the fifth. Oh, but, um, but yes, I don't know if it's just, you know, like Angela Thurkill or something where it's they're all vaguely set in the same place, or if it is yeah. genuinely it's certainly some of them from something I read somewhere else are, are historical, so it might be different generations of this family. Oh, interesting. I didn't realise that. And both books, in fact, have quite a long preamble setting up um, this This is how the family relates to each other and this is how we got to where we are today and you take a while to get going. Yeah. Like a few pages of explanation. And I found it a bit dizzying, particularly in... I mean, in, in the Half Crown House, you could sort of sense you didn't need to know because it was talking about things that happened centuries earlier. Whereas Foolish Gentleman, it's like you're trying to put together all the different people who married people and then they killed off and you're trying to think, okay... And it's essentially just getting you to the point where you know that Isabel's a widow and her brother-in-law is visiting. That's the important part. For you. Yeah, I remember yeah, finding yeah. The, the opening quite difficult and then also working out who everyone was who was living at the house. Mm, and yeah, some of them, I mean, I have no idea why Humphrey was there. No, he just, he just needed just one that. person. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so yes, what, what, what was your impression of Foolish Gentlewoman? Well, you know, I've read a, a few Marjorie Sharps now. I was expecting it to be perhaps more funny than it was sort of more mm, mm. i mean it is funny because i don't think marjorie sharp could not be funny but, <laughs> but it's not not a clooney brown funny no but it's not a sort of you know laugh out loud or isn't everyone ridiculous sort of novel it's um i really enjoyed it i think that the the premise is bizarre and shouldn't work but somehow does mm, this mm. idea of her having this um kind of moment in church of being like I've done this terrible thing and I need to atone for it um and I thought it was really clever how she she plays with that idea because at the beginning of the novel you kind of buy into this perhaps the brother-in-law's belief that Isabel Mm. is flighty and selfish and everything else and that you know she's done poor old Tilly out out of a good life that she could have had and then when Tilly arrives and actually, she's a total nightmare. Yes. Yeah, um, yeah. Your your sympathies start to shift as a reader completely, and it becomes much more interesting and much darker as a novel because what you're being asked to do is confront the fact that actually, just because somebody's had a hard time of it, doesn't mean that they deserve your sympathy. Um, and it's yeah, I think it's very interesting, and it's very interesting to look at also. I suppose in some ways, I mean, has is has Tilly always been an unpleasant person or has her life made her unpleasant? And you've got that kind of question going on the whole time. But it's very interesting. It's very interesting at looking at female relationships and the manipulation that can go on beneath the surface of relationships of of sympathy and empathy and blame and guilt and um, you know, who is responsible for your life turning out the way that it turns out? You know, that's the question, isn't it? And one wonders whether Tilly and this other bloke, if they hadn't just told each other how they felt, then perhaps the whole thing could have been avoided. Yeah, I was going to use the word manipulative as well, because Tilly she has had to be manipulative, basically, as a companion yeah. to just to not get fired. And she's, <laughs> I think she's talking about a dog or something later, where she, something where she's like, you're getting old and less representative. And yeah. less, you know, presentable and you know, and she's clearly talking about herself yeah. um and you know, getting to the age where she's she's not going to be hired by older women for her sort of sprightly youthfulness oh, gosh. Yes. um so it is yeah she, it is interesting that she is she is a victim in some ways she's also awful uh isabel is much more likable um and again won't spoil the ending but when the offer is finally made to tilly to have have everything i thought that was a really moving and interesting moment her response to that mm. yeah um yeah i I, th- and I think this could easily have been a much more comic novel where everything was slightly ridiculous and and marjorie sharp does do that whole spectrum from from um knockabout comedy essentially to much more poignant and this is i think probably somewhere in the middle um, yes 
And I think it's, you know, she, again, she creates the setting very well. And I like how she's got characters of different generations. So you can see um, that kind of post-war attitude also in Humphrey and what's her name? Um, Jacqueline. Jacqueline. Thank you. He's, he's there. And, you know, their romance that, again, I won't say how it turns out, but the, it's very, you know, she deals with that very unexpectedly as well. It's like we get to the end and all of the, the, the ways in which we see this novel turning out are upended. And I wonder if part of that is her saying, well, you know, we're in the 1950s now and we can't rely on these old traditional tropes. You know, life isn't as simple as that. Life doesn't always work out like that. And, you know, being comfortable isn't necessarily a um, an ideal outcome for anyone because that's all that the brother-in-law has ever wanted, his life to be easy, his life to be comfortable. He's never got married because he can't be bothered with dealing with someone else. Um you know, he's, he's only staying uh, Isabel's house because his home is having some renovations done on it mm-hmm. and he can't bear living amongst the mess. And his very restricted, very sanitised and um, I suppose, what? how would else would I describe it? Dull and safe little world he's built mm-hmm. for himself. And that he's trying to force Isabel to live too by constantly watching her money and telling her what's sensible and oh she should sell the house and everything else that would be the sensible thing to do. And Joanne and um, Isabel holding on to this kind of romantic idea of his house and her loving it even though it's impractical. It's really interesting because it's just looking at different ways of of living your life. And I think in many ways it's a very pragmatic novel, um, but with an element of romance to it, but it's pragmatic in the sense of saying, well, you know, you can do everything you can to protect yourself and your life and do all the right things, but things don't always work out. And you've got to be, I guess, flexible. And, you know, everyone anticipates that what Isabel is doing is going to be disastrous, but actually she makes the best of it. Yeah. And she's definitely in that fine line of, of, of mid-century female characters who make the best of the situation they're in yeah even even if the situation she's in is of her own making exactly but she owns it and she's like you know this is what i'm doing i understand what this means for me and i'm committed to make that sacrifice because i think this is the right thing to do and that's something her brother-in-law can't understand because he's selfish i think it's interesting there's two things that are quite interesting about it being mid-century so um fellow gentleman is end of the 40s and half grand house is mid 50s both of them much more detailed and, and sympathetic portraits of servant classes mm. than if, if the novels had been a couple of decades earlier, I think. So in, in Foolish Gentleman, you've got Mrs. Poole and her daughter, Greta, uh, named after Greta Garbo. Um, yeah. And yes, and they have their own quite moving story. Uh, and they're not treated as absurd characters. They're there. They're, they're, how the, the impact of um, Isabel's decision on their lives is very ser- taken very seriously, perhaps more seriously than the impact on anyone else's life. Um, and then in The Half Crown House, perhaps, yeah, I mean, Leaf the Butler, um, ridiculous name, <laughs> but, uh, and various other servants um, and companions, you get a lot from their perspective, a lot of, a lot of depth. They're not just they're equally significant characters in both books. Yeah, and I, I think there's also that sense that they're slightly, that idea of, you know, the um, Greta and her mum in um, The Foolish Gentlewoman, it's like they're there because it suits them to be there. And when it doesn't suit them to be there, they'll leave. There isn't that kind of sense of unstinting devotion mm-hmm. that, that you would find in novels of an earlier age. And the same in you know, the half-crown house, you know, Leaf stays there because it suits him to stay there because that's where his memories are and whatever. But there's no sense of, of him, I guess, groveling in a in mm-hmm. a way that you would... And, and there's also a sense of him as an individual with a life with memories of his own um, and with reasons of his own for being where he is and choosing the life that he's lived. And I think that's really... Yeah, it's, it's, it's nice to see that those those sorts of characters are actually characters and they have something to contribute in a way that yeah, I, yeah. I think you, they're often just figures of fun in early enough, yeah, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, well, coming up for an hour, so we should probably draw to a close, but uh, which of these two would you choose? I like them both very much for different reasons, but I think the one I'm most likely to read again would probably be the half crown house. 
I just really liked yeah. how interesting the premise was. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I really enjoyed them, but uh, I think I am leaning towards The Foolish Gentlewoman on this one. Mm-hmm. I do love Marjorie Sharp. She more and good. more. Lovely. Good stuff. Um, next time, um, we will be doing two Barbara Pym novels, Crampton Hodnet, 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 I forget. Hodnet, yeah. Um, and A Glass of Blessings, uh, which we are doing to celebrate the fact that Paul, is it Paula Byrne as a new biography of her? Yes, aunt? that's right, yeah. Yes. Um, so look forward to doing that. If you have any suggestions or for topics or questions for the middle section, you can get in touch at teaorbooks at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Indeed. Thank you very much for listening. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Bye.